for a really important reason. That is, you know, roadies are absolutely central to um, the putting on of a music event. I wonder whether you could tell us uh, your earliest kind of memories of um, taking up your work in the music industry. The very first time I, I was at the, uh, about 1968 with um, uh, a gig in those days was Preston Circle, which is a Preston Town Hall, and um, Tony Woosley and the Blue Jays were playing. And I remember going back, and in those days I was a Sharpie, so that we never had long hair, and we, we, everyone else got the girls, and we'd beat up on the boys and stuff. And I remember these guys coming in from this outside in the car park loading gear, and I saw this guy actually bringing it in, you know, and, and putting it on the stage. I went, ah, what do you do? So I'm a roadie. I said, do you get girls? I went, yeah, mate, watch. So I watched, and after that I wanted to become a roadie, so I thought I'd stop beating people up and become a roadie. Uh, and then uh, in those days we were fortunate enough to be just in the era of the Easy Beats and the Johnny O'Keefe's and Cole Joys were um, basically uh, not being pushed aside uh, they were huge in RSL clubs and stuff throughout Australia, but all of a sudden these other uh, acts started to come up out of nowhere. And about 68, 69, and that would have been in Melbourne, it would have been basically out of a place called the Much More Boreham in Fitzroy. And I saw the birth of um, uh, many bands there, Jack Camilleri and Wilson and Daddy Cool, who actually originally was called the Sons of the Vegetal Mother, and they were like a big 12-piece band, and that band ended up splitting into two, and that was Daddy Cool and Spectrum, and eventually in the old, uh, you know, eventually uh, within 18 months or two years, that sort of occurred. Um, in those days, then, um, uh, a mate of mine was working with a band called the Valentines, and the Valentines had Bon Scott and Vince Lovegrove as the lead singers. And they were all pink with flared trousers and, and blue with flared trousers and green with flared trousers and whatever, yeah. And that was sort of like the beginning of where I actually started to do the job. And that was, uh, looking in our day, you weren't a technician, you were just a roadie. And those roadies meant to get in and out of a venue with the equipment, put on stage, plug it all up, have it ready, band would walk out and play. Band would finish, off you go. In our era, even in those days, uh, Michael Gadinsky was running a place in North Road, it was, it was Ormond Hall, memory served me correctly, and um, he was pretty close to us. He was working in a place called Ambo, and he was only 16 at the time. And he this started. Michael, Michael Gadinsky, yeah. age 16, yeah. doing roadie no, um, work? No, up? he did a little bit. Did a little bit, but but he was in a place called Amber, which was an Australian music booking organisation, uh, with a guy called Jeff Joseph, uh, Bill Joseph, I'm sorry, and. Um, so we met Michael at a very young age and he ran this gig at Ormond Hall so because he was close to us the Valentines used to play there. Most bands in that time would have done Friday, Saturday and Sunday and we would have done probably three, four gigs a night and most bands, one band, one roadie so it was as simple as that uh, but we would do just down across the road is little Beckett Street there was a famous gig just down there called Thump and Tum which was massive in our day I mean it was a filthy pit of a place you know people spit on the ground spew on the ground shit on the ground everything was on the ground but you'd, you'd go through and put your gear up and do your gig and piss off and go to the next one and it used to be the Tum Birdies Sebastians and the Catcher in the old days down the back um, so that's where myself and Unfortunately, a lot of the old guys that have passed on now, but that's where we all started. Um, in that era, it was like 
in all honesty, look, if you had a van, you got a job. If you owned your van, you got a job because the one thing the bands didn't have was a van. They would, I even remember Daddy Cool, you know, Wayne and had an old FJ and Gary the drummer and Wayne used to turn up and unload the gear out of the back of the, the, the FJ and, and, and get into much more brewer and set the gear up and that's when I started to get to know them even though I was doing some stuff for the Valentines and, um, and they, I, I bought myself a van because I thought shit, you know, 100 bucks can't go wrong and buy a van. Uh, within a week I had a job and uh, Wilson, uh, I saw Ross this night at the Much More in this other band and he said, oh, is that your van? I was like, yeah. He said, oh, we're doing a gig in Adelaide. I wonder if you could come to Adelaide with us and we could put the gear in your van and we'll pay you $15. Oh, great, fantastic. Could you set it up? So basically that's where I started and that's where most other people right. started. So we were just um, talking before now that you reckon you are officially the most senior roadie in Australia, yes. packed with the experience. So if you were to sum up the changes... Uh, in that kind of work over, you know, what, 40 years that you've been, 44 years have been doing, what would those changes be? Like like I said at the beginning, it's different now. I mean, I watched a friend of mine go on Hot Seat Millionaire and uh, uh, Eddie Maguire said, he said, what's your background? He said, I work for rock and roll bands and blah, blah, blah. He said, oh, you're a roadie. And instantly turned on Eddie and said, no, I'm a technician. And that really irritated me, pissed me off. I ended up ringing him up straight away going, how are you talking about a technician? You know, don't call yourself a roadie. You are a technician. You weren't a roadie at all. You know, so what what I mean by that is, from '68 to '74, there were a whole lot of old uh, guys like myself, Norm Sweeney with Thorpey, Jiver with Chain, Scrooge with Daddy Cool, Darcy with Healing Force, so and so with him, John Sweeney with. Uh, Sirius, a band from Hungary that was on the loose over here without permits and stuff. And one band, one roadie, you know, Swampy was with Sherbet and so-and-so was with Skyhooks and, and, and on we went, you know. And I can honestly say now that in hindsight the growth of that to 74 gave us quite a good... I mean, I was fortunate. I, I was the first roadie to go overseas with his own band. Um, there were no other... Daddy Cool was the first band to tour America. And most people don't know that we toured there between 72 and 74 three times, spent nearly probably 20, 24 months over a period of three years in the States and um, worked for various acts that people wouldn't have heard of here, which later became quite famous. You know, Boz Skaggs and Linda Ronstadt and, you know, Captain Beefheart and Zapper and all these different people we saw and worked with Little Feet, a whole lot of bands that we worked with. And that sort of... I was a unique human, you know, um, you were, you're from Australia. Yes, mate, I'm from Australia. Which they all thought we were English, of course. And mm-hmm. I've got to get there one day. No, don't come. There's too many kangaroos. They jump in, whatever. So we fobbed it off. So then that, that period ceased. Skyhooks and Sherbet had decided that, that to lift the ante. You know, there was the bubbling chisels and all the rest of them, and they were doing okay. But we lifted the ante. And the reason we lifted the ante was because for the first time, Bill Joseph, uh, as Tony about Michael and Bill being in Amber, we do little clubs. And then one day, Bill said, oh, look, you know, we're going to do something quite unique in Melbourne. They'd been doing this for years in Sydney. We're going to do a pub gig. Well, what's that? We're going to work at the Whitehorse Hotel was the first pub gig in Victoria. And um, we're going to put Thorpey on Friday night and Daddy Cool on Saturday night. And it was a shit fight. I mean, I, I punched my way in and out of the place. 
with it, you know, without any two ways. We were, if you weren't good at that, you weren't a good roadie because, you know, everyone tried to beat up on the band, basically. Um, so that, that era changed with Skyhooks, who ended up having a lighting guy. Yeah, and then so hydraulic lights come in all of a sudden. Sherbet then thought, well, we better get that too. So they got lights. So they got two roadies. Then they got another guy to help the other two roadies, you know. And Sherbet and Skyhooks did the same thing, whereas Daddy Cool never had that. You know, we were just a band, a little four-piece band that went out and did our gig. Uh, we played you know, my music bowl, 150,000 people with a PA smaller than what you got in this room. You know, and, and it worked. And um, I might add two just in the old Daddy Cool album, if you ever open it up and have a look right in the background there, you'll see Red Simon standing in the corner long before he, he was in Skyhawks. And uh, it's quite unique that that period sort of finished but started everybody. Um, you said about, you know, Little River Band stuff before. Um, I'm not you know, blowing the trumpet or anything, but uh, in between that period, you know, like I was telling you before, I kept that um, I was in the States and saw Billy Joel in a little club with 30 people in it, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and come back here and told people about that and we ended up bringing him out. Can you, t- can you tell that story again about your, oh, your first yeah, meeting? I was called Paul's Mall, and um, some I just was going out, that's all. I had a night off, so I went out to this club and they said, the piano man. I thought, oh, shit, this would be good, you know. So I'll go in there and see this guy called Billy Joel playing with his band. And, and uh, there were 30, 40 people in there, I suppose. Um, I was working for a company called Paradigm Patterson at the time, who was um, Sir David Frost's uh, co-company in Australia. Uh, his name's actually David Paradigm Frost, and that's where the Paradigm come from. Uh, but we were looking for acts. We were the first promoting company in the country to pay a million dollars for an act and that was Neil Diamond at the My Music Bowl. Mm. Uh, that in those days you couldn't get an act of that quality or that selling ability unless the record company from the state said you've got to have somebody else. Uh, it's an underbubbler, you know. The underbubbler was Billy Joel. They, they uh, Warner Bros, Sony Records, I think it was, I can't remember. Sony got hold of that and realised and I also had told my people in Australia that I'd seen this band and I thought they were pretty good. And when we actually, you know, Boz Skaggs, we did Neil Diamond, Bob Dylan and Denver, the three Ds, uh, which was Jerry Weintraub ended up marrying Helen Reddy. But more to the point, that they were the three Ds we did. But out of that, we got Billy Joel and I can't remember the other bands we got. But uh, And Billy came out to Australia and we toured him, you know, on a, on a shoestring. And I remember doing Canberra Theatre with 60 people. And, but that's cool because I, you know, I mean, I'm fortunate enough to say that, you know, that because of the, the era we lived in, you know, um, Billy often calls, you know, Scrooge, how are you, mate? Good, thanks, you know. Not just uh, not me, but all of the bands from our era uh, proved a point when we did Long Way to the Top ten years ago. We did the the next version two years back there. Um, it's been 40 years since I've worked with a group of people. That, you know, the bands and the crew were... We weren't a band and, and the roadies. We were... It was just... A, we're all together. Like, like I was telling you about the friendship with Red and various different people. And, and all the old guys get together. And, you know, unfortunately, we go to a lot more funerals than we do 21st. So, I mean, Bill Putt died recently. And my son and myself went up to his funeral in uh, Strathewan and um, uh, ran into a whole lot of uh, us people and, and, the, and the love and the understanding about what we did certainly does not exist today at all, at all. It's just a completely different vibe nowadays. 
completely different. So being on the road often involved making a good team of friends, lifelong friends. Well, the thing, you know, look, I depended on the band to play really well every night to keep my job. If the band was shit house, I never had a job and the band had split up. They depended on me to put the gear there and make sure that was working so they could continue to do what they did to earn a living. And I remember Daddy Cool, we were the highest paid band in the country, you know, number one Eagle Rock. I think we were getting 100 bucks a gig. I was the highest paid roadie in Australia for years and my wage was $25.50 a week and I was doing 14 gigs a week for that. You know, so it's changed a little bit now. They don't go out unless they get two and a half grand to call themselves a technician. Uh, one of the things that's changed is your salary, which I don't want to know about, but I hope it has. Um, you were just referred to the three Ds, the three uh, towns in America, and that were a test run. And you, uh, you also re- uh, were telling me about a test run of cities in Australia. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that again? When in the olden days, um, between like 68 and 74, there were a lot of venues. You had your Bombay Rocks and your, your venue in St Kilda and you know, all these other gigs. But in, in that specific time, if you had a band and you wanted to find out if you were going to be a successful band, there were only three places in the country to play, and that would have been the Octagon in Elizabeth, South Australia, which was a pub. Melbourne would have been the White Horse Hotel, Southside 6, Matthew Flinders, Village Green, whatever, because they'd chuck shit at you if you didn't play good. And, and the other one was Newcastle. If you couldn't crack those three places, you were going to get nowhere. Now, it wouldn't matter if you were Sherbet, if you were Skyhooks, if you were Daddy Cool, if you were Cold Chisel, whoever you were, that audience would turn up at that venue you did and would you'd be successfully making... $100 a gig, you know, so that made you successful. So it changed over that period from... from the, when bands would make it here and they, they, and they did well in Melbourne and Newcastle and Adelaide, the first thing the bands would say, if you had a number one record, you know, Skyhooks and all those included, was, can't wait to get to New South Wales and do the Rooty Hill RSL and the Wollongong RSL and the so-and-so. Because in those days, the RSL clubs, and still are, were huge for, for bands to make money and to survive because they were used to having poker machines there, you know. Uh, the introduction of those things into Victoria crueled the pub scene, in, in, crueled the rock and roll pub scene here. It just went straight downhill. Uh, because they didn't understand that the RSL clubs, they weren't hotels, they were RSL clubs. You know, Seagulls or Cronulla RSL had a massive room that could fit eight, 900 people with an auditorium in it, 2,000 poker machines in the dining room. But when they did it in Victoria, they went, oh, well, this is where the band used to play, so we'll piss all that shit off and go and get a whole lot of poker machines and put poker Well, that, that stopped the pub scene. Now... I'm not a goose, I can drive around Melbourne and pick up a, a beat magazine and there's 150,000 venues that fit 60 people. Or 100, and then they try and close the tote. Everyone goes, oh shit, don't close the tote. Now I agree with them, because without little pub gigs like the tote and shit, you can't get a little band together and go, well, let's find out if we're good or if we shit out. You know, well, the, the tote and those little genuine hotel gigs are very important to the next scale you know uh, and as I said before about the change in venues was 
there's pub gigs in Melbourne and RSLs in New South Wales and Mediterranean in the Octagon there and so-and-so in Perth and so-and-so in Queensland. And then it graduated, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you got a number one and everyone thought, oh, shit, you're real big and Skyhawks and Sherbet come along with all their stuff. And so all of a sudden, bang, we went from that to we're going to do the Palais or Festival Hall, you know, and put 4,000 people on. Wow, you know, it's just, do you reckon we can do it? And in the end it worked. But not because you had Skyhooks on or Sherbet. It was because you had Sherbet or Skyhooks and John Paul Young and somebody else and somebody else on that same bill, you know. Uh, And as I said before about the music, in the old days, you know, the Beatles and and Jimi Hendrix were the first to release a song that went over three minutes and it was like unheard of. You know, Hey Jude went for four minutes. I went, Jesus Christ, you'll never play that in the radio. You know, and then that changed everything. That, That sort of mental thing changed and what I call the in excess era which uh, came along about 77 Little River Band in excess men at work that that era started to we graduated into America we, we were accepted that you know uh, I, look, there were bands around in my day like Bulldog and Goanna and uh, uh, Daddy Cool and Healing Force and bands that were just extraordinarily uh, good bands they were world class but we lived in Melbourne, for Christ's sake. No one gave a shit, you know. And then all of a sudden, LRB... You know, Daddy Cool did extremely well in America. No one recognised that, you know. We were the first Australian band to tour the United States of America, you know. We did three times before 1974. And we were successful, you know. Chardonnay came up to us one night and went, please, can we go on after you blokes, you know, before you blokes, because, you know, and Chardonnay were huge in America. And they're just little four-piece Daddy Cool, you know, looking like idiots playing better than them, you know, and they had a ten-piece band, you know. Um, and then LRB released, um, I can't remember the name of the song, B. Birdles wrote it, and, and it became like a number 14 on Billboard, and then it was a band, LRB, we were called Mississippi, then they became LRB. And that, you know, started the entree of Australia's uh, act. I remember sitting on a plane with um, Sharrick going over to the States in 77, where they hounded the Christ out of me to come and work for him, and I didn't want to know about it because I was already back and forth from the States working with Stevie Wonder and, and Billy Joel and, and Little Feet and that. So I didn't want to know really and uh and okay, I'll go to America. How long? Fourteen months. We're gonna do Europe and England and Canada and Japan or something. I'm going fifteen hundred a week multiplied by figure. So yeah, that's why I took it. Uh but we we're on the plane going over and I remember uh, Glenn saying to me, oh, how do you think we'll do in the States, Scrooge? And I so I turned to Glenn and smiled at him. I said well, my dear, uh, the only thing I can say to you, Glenn, being one of the most honest men I've ever met, and a, and a gentleman too, I might add, I've got a lot of respect for the man, are you as good as the Eagles? Are you as good as the Doobie Brothers? Because that's who we're touring with. And we did tour the Doobie Brothers, Bob Seger and Daddy, and, uh, and uh, Little River Band were the three acts that toured for a year in America. And we'd each take a turn in billing, you know, the Doobie Brothers, listen to music, and Bob Seger, and Night Moves, and, and, and Little River Band, but... We, and I'm not being disrespectful, we were nowhere near the, the level of uh, LRB and uh, we're nowhere near the level of the Doobie Brothers and, uh, and the Eagles at that stage of the game. Uh, they were very, very far in front of us. But, but we competed and I remember one night we were there and we heard Men at Work had just got a number one and uh, we went to the Greek Theatre in, in LA where we'd, Little River had done three gigs there and... Um, we went to the Greek to see Men at Work and there's this little band called Men at Work from the pub in Richmond that were five-piece standing in a stage that was massive and there's this little band, you know, and, and everyone else in America had production. And we, you know, so then, then all of a sudden, that when the next phase grew, 
or we come home and all of a sudden we go, roadies became tour managers and tour managers became production managers and roadies became road managers and there were all, oh, fuck, there were five people there now instead of one because there was life after roadie. In my time, your band split up, you'd very rarely got another gig because the next band that formed after the band that split up was never as good as the band that split up. Like Daddy Cool, Mighty Kong was never as good as Daddy Cool. And, and, and Skyhawks didn't do anything, you know. Uh, they might have called themselves another name, whatever, and Sherbert didn't do it, and blah, 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 and all the way through, you know. So that, that, that changed that era, what I call in excess era, because then in excess came along above the men at work and the LRB and that, and then made the next step forward and become an internationally accepted Australian act on that level where people respected the fact that we could actually write songs, play them, and people liked them, and you could sell a million records. And I mean, you know, people go, oh, nowadays, you know, how many gold records did Daddy, Daddy Cool ever get? I've got three, I think. And they go, oh, jeez, I've got a platinum. You know, Guy Sebastian's got a platinum. And someone from The Voice and someone from X Factor and who are absolutely crippling this industry. And uh, they're not like touring acts, so we can't make money. We're roadies. We're, we're production people. We can't TV. Nothing. So now and they go, I've got a platinum record. How many you sell for that? Oh, 5,000. Daddy Cool had to sell 250,000. You know, Skyhooks had to sell 250,000 to get it like 125,000 for a silver record. Now these guys get a platinum record and, um, you know, get 50 grand a gig. <laughs> so that, that era changed uh, from 76 to 86 was what I call that in excess era and that really established Australia where after that crowded house and all the rest of them started fumbling along and, and, and becoming production bands. Yeah. You've listened to thousands of hours of music, seen many, many, many performances, good and bad. Um, does music still interest you? Uh, is, are there any, is there a certain type of music or, or a band that you remember? That was great. I, I, could, I sleep with a radio in my ear every night to the uh, amazement of both my sons and my, my wife. I, I, I can't... I, I sleep with the radio right here. And if it annoys you, I'll put earphones in, but I'm sound asleep because I'm so used to that thing over 40 years. I can't sleep without the TV on or some noise around me, but I can sleep soundly, no problem at all. Um, I won't listen to music on the radio at all. At all. I don't buy CDs at all. Every now and again, I'll get a bit of an itch and I'll go out and go, oh, shit, you know, there's an old... I think my original favourite band when I was growing up and one was Traffic, Steve Winwood. After Traffic, Steely Dan. And to me, Steely Dan was the probably the most extraordinarily technical, right music. That, you know, Steely Dan just above, to me, in my mind anyway, uh, I've always been above everybody with respect to the super tramp of their era you know super tramp was way in front of everybody else in production and stuff and music but stilly dan without a doubt are probably the most unique band that i've heard seen and worked for in the last 44 years best live acts i've ever worked with billy joel elton john doobie brothers uh they were perfect the eagles perfect every night no matter what but i might also add one of the nicest people I've ever worked with, and I've done four world tours with him, God rest his soul, he was a fine man, was Roy Orbison. He never failed. Never failed to sound like Roy Orbison every night. He sang the songs every night. He never fluffed one. He never dropped a note. So, you know, you, 
<coughs> you can sort of have a, a Roy Orbison, but you can also have like a, an Eagles Orbison. I'm not into the punk and the hip-hop and the, all this shit. Oh, I can't understand it. Rap. There's a rap, you know. And you go, What's rap? And rhyme and poetry. And then nowadays you've got your... You know, your spears and whatever, and it's all this, it's all... You know, I don't want to see the dancers, I don't want to see your crunch, I don't want to know how tight your tights are. What I want to know, I don't, I don't give a shit that you're a trapeze artist. Where is you in the band? What can you give me? Nothing. Nothing. They've got to have all this shit to... You know, OK, they've got songs. I'm not saying, look, I think Pink's fantastic, but I, I wouldn't go and see her. So you rate really hard-working, talented musicians who commit themselves yeah. to the audience... Yeah. We come from working for bands. And, and, and as I'm saying, my era's finished. My era's finished. Um, I, I can't, there's no career for kids anymore. I started off as a shitty roadie getting 20 bucks a week and, uh, and you know, and, and working for 44 years and, and lived off what I do, uh, what I've earned, my reputation. I never had a full-time job until seven years ago, you know, and I'm 64, <laughs> you know. And, and now I work for a company called EPS who provide... Aluminium, you know, people go, what do you do? And I go, well, you know, when there's a gig at Eddie had, like, you know, at the moment, Bon Jovi and Taylor Swift, and someone buggers up the turf, where the, where the guys that bugger up the turf, we put the aluminium roadways in and we do it worldwide. We've got major contracts with Madonna's and U2 and, and stuff, and we've got a lot of people, you know, we're a major international company based in Germany on the Australian side of myself and three or four other dudes. But um, there's no career anymore in, you know. Uh, they go, oh, you know, work on Bon Jovi here, but hang on a minute, there's, you know, 150 people working on that. There's 50 guys working for the staging company to put up a stage the size of a skyscraper. And, 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 and if you want to be in part of that, you've got to become a scaffold or a rigger. You're not a roadie, you're a rigger, you know, and the lighting guys, well, that's a completely different ball game altogether. You know, so uh, all those jobs have become specialist areas with big um, technicians, technicians and mate. big crews. Yeah, no such thing as a roadie. The roadies of today are called loaders. 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 And you go to a loading company like Gig Power or Lock and Load and say, so I need 50 guys to undo, empty these four semi-trailers into Etihad. Or, in actual fact, it's not four, it's more like 75 semi-trailers but, um, per show nowadays. But the, the, the air is gone. There's no career path. One of the young lads at work, he's 23... He got not kicked out of school. He was he was told, look, I'll give you a VCE providing you don't come back. Okay, so he didn't go back. He was 17. In the last four, three and a half years, 23 years of age, he toured the world with Madonna, toured the world with U2, he's toured the world with Bon Jovi, and he's, he's back in Australia doing because this is where he lives, and he's 23 years old. Now, he's been around the world, and I'm talking every country, Japan, Russia... India, South Africa, Israel, Greece, Italy, Spain, England, you go on and on. He's done all that in the last three years. No? But he's a labourer. He's just a labourer. Now he does his job exceptionally well at work. Before work and after work. Laziest guy I've ever come across. Why are, you, why are you two hours late for work today? Oh, I slept in your computer phone. Oh, well, I don't give a shit about your computer, mate. I don't use one. I don't use a computer. Don't want to know about it. I write everything down like I used to. I keep it all in here. And it's ironic that I'm here because on Monday morning, as I told you, that uh, I'm doing the RMIT graduation at Etihad, which I've done for 12 years in a row now, and watched the 9,000 students from next door graduate, which I've seen for... 12 years 
which is ironic that, you know, and then it's almost ironic too that uh, next door at the Story Hall, in our day, in Daddy Cool Day, we used to do all the unis, you know, Latrobe, Monash, well, there's only three. That, as venues. Uh, as Melbourne Uni, yeah. as venues. And Story Hall was another one. Yeah. And this is, I can remember working here heaps of times with Daddy Cool. And, um, and also at Latrobe. And we used to do lunchtime gigs in the city, middle of the city, in a building. Just There's a building, there's a big area of concrete which set the gear up and start playing at lunchtime, you know, and, and, and stuff like that. So it, it's changed dramatically. I'm not pissed off with it, uh, but it's not ideal if someone comes and says to you, how can I get into this business, mate? It's a really hard answer. It's a really, really hard answer. But with the um, you know, hundreds of small venues you mentioned mm. that we have in Melbourne, and there seems to be a pretty live, mm. a strong no live future. music, but still a live, no, live no music, future. no future for the no future. for the venues or for the for musicians? Any. You don't think Not so? For any of them, no. What no. do you think is going to happen then? It'll just bubble along the way it's going and, yeah. you know, um, young lad over there might get a band together and, and, and get a, a gig where the pub says to him, well, we ain't paying you to work here. Mm. And now they don't have, you know, and you see them lumber their gear inside and they've got their own little amplifier and the venue's got a PA now, which they never had in our day. We used to bring our own and everyone used to share it, you know. And, uh, and it, it, it's, they're hoping, I guess, like everybody else, to have that, that song. Without that song, you're nothing. And now I, I, I say again that there must be I hesitate. If I'm wrong, I'll eat my words. If I reckon there isn't 800 bands working in various little pubs around Melbourne right now, I'll stick it up my own freckle. You know, but name one of them. Name one of them. Now, you know, you, you might say, oh, I go and see so-and-so whereabouts. Oh, this pub, you know, Barley Corn Hotel, whatever. But, you know, oh, it's a great night, the band's fantastic, but... And, you, you know, you can only drive up and down Brunswick Street for Troy, for Christ's sake, and every little club there's got... You know, maybe 150 people in it, and probably two bands a night. I mean, the Black Cat in uh, Johnson Street uh, was probably the, the the only place that spurned, you know, or, or, or bands have come out of there. And the Cat Empire, for the sake of argument, the Cat Empire is one of the bands that come out of that little venue. So, you know, a rarity will occur in, in that industry where a band will come out of a venue like that and actually make something of themselves, you know. I think the Cat Empire is probably a unique example. What, what about some of the, the larger venues? Um, a lot of the people we interviewed for this exhibition, and some of my undergraduates too are musicians, um, you know, love the, the forum particularly and uh, festival halls. Mm. The, the festival hall, not so much, but the forum, yeah. they've got a vibe about it. Mm. Palais's got a bit of a vibe about it. The forum's got, always had a vibe about it for some reason, I don't know why. I remember going to see movies here when I was a kid, old yellow. You know, cried my eyes out, but it's a good venue. I'm just wondering, is there anyone sitting here who's got a favourite venue they, they, they've been to, they've liked, enjoyed, still enjoy, or remember, it's been knocked down? Corner Hotel. I still do a lot of gigs there, mate. Yeah. You've got to get there one night. A lot of bands play there, and I think, well, that's what I was saying before. I think the corner and, and, um, and maybe that you know, black cat, they're unique, you know. I mean, the corner's always got something going, and they're willing to um, uh, help other bands play and stuff. The venue that was knocked down, the venue in St Kilda, yeah. That was called, that was yeah, place. yeah. Before that, it was St Moritz Ice Skating Rink. Right. Yeah, I remember skating there when I was twelve. So it was quite unique going back there and seeing it as a rock and roll gig. Yeah. But um, but the corner is is probably. 
pretty unique, I think. It's just survived. Probably survived longer than anything, I think, the corner. But, um, Prince of Wales, that's similar. Which Prince one? Prince of Wales. Yeah, yeah, the Prince of Wales, yeah. yeah. But see, there's a guy that is now in a company called Live Nation, which is a real pity they've, con- they've got money coming out of their backside. And most of these big acts at work now, like, I was amazed that Kaninsky got the stones because Dainey was going for the stones. And Dainey was told, well, hang on, let's just, for the sake of argument, okay, we're going to, we'll do the Tour of Australia for 50 million. The Live Nation come along, and Dainey knows Jagger really well, went to school with him for Christ's sake. The Live Nation come along, we'll give you 60. Well, when you're retiring age, which they all are, you know, I mean, the biggest acts in the world are the Heritage Acts right now. Okay, Springsteen, Bon Jovi, they're all, they've all been around 35 years. The little acts are doing whatever. But it's, 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 the Stones played at the corner. You know what I mean? I mean, and the venue and those places is where we all grew up. I mean, Joe Galtieri, um, who ran the venue, um, I mean, you know, it's a different vibe different vibe. It was good to be there. I didn't do... I, I, look, I was fortunate. The only person I've ever managed in my life who I even wanted to manage, who I even thought was an exceptionally unique talent in this country was Mark Gillespie, who had a great song, Only Human. I managed Mark for some time and we had a, a little uh, competition between the man that's sitting right there, Mr Ian Lovell, and he had a band called the Goanna Band. And we used to hang out at the Goanna Manor and we used to say to each other, my band's going to get a number one before your band's going to get a number one and my band's going to... What do you got? I've got Shane Howe, we've got this Southern Land stuff, Aboriginal shit, and I'm going, wow, you know, and what are you? I've got Mark Lesbian, only human. And so we do. They got the number one. Mark was a fruitcake. Um, uh, Mark probably... Uh, I even still listen to Mark today. He's probably the most unique songwriter I've ever come across in Australia, better than Richard Clapton. And Paul Kelly, he's on an equal part of Paul Kelly. I think most of those dudes at that elk, yep, yep, he wasn't too bad. Uh, much the same as Shane and those guys, you know. Uh, they did it hard to go in a band. Mark did it easy and didn't realise what he had. And um, ended up, you know, we were support act for Dire Straits. And one night before the first 28 shows in Melbourne and the 36 in me, I went to pick him up and he was in Lahore in Bangladesh, you know, working in an orphanage. He just shot off that night and didn't give two hoots about rock and roll. Never came back for years. Uh, total fruitcake, but very unique, and I've got a lot of respect for him. He was great. But, yeah, the corner, I think, was good. You know, venue, yeah, Bombay Rock. If you, if you couldn't work Bombay Rock, you, you were rooted. You know, if you couldn't work there and win the audience, you, you were killed. So, yeah, it changed a lot. Those days are gone. Well, really, um, I reckon it was a for a lot of bands. Yeah, well, that, in those days, I mean, Daddy Cool, we used to work with the Strangers, for Christ's sake, and we'd do St Kilda Town Hall and various places like that, and Town Criers and all Aesop's Fables and all these other bands from our day, you know, uh, the Blue Echoes, you know, and all these bands would work together in these gigs, you know, especially the uni gigs. The uni balls are where we all made money at the end of the year. And, um, no, they were, they were springboards, but... Um, as I say, that era's gone, and there's, and I feel sorry for the kids of today that uh, they can't get a gig as a roadie and, and become a career anymore because there's 2,000 bands out there working in 100 pubs, which means three or four bands a night earning $10 each. And they've all got full-time jobs, I'm sure of it. 
um, I'm positive of it. You know, we, us older dudes in rock and roll, it's quite unique. Look, in 1977, Christ's sake, I was making two and a half grand a week, US. 1977. Spent a thousand bucks a week on cocaine. I was doing great, you know, but I was a good colour green by the time I decided to stop. Now, I never earned less than $2,000 a week for, Christ, I don't know, 37 years, you know, but now I, I'm lucky if I get a fifth of that every week. But I'm older, I'm settled, I'm happy with that, I've done my time, I want the young 23 year olds to get up off their ass and go and do the job. But they haven't got the work ethic. They don't have the work ethic today that we had. We were proud of what we did. And we were very proud to be roadies. And I hold, yeah, well, I hold the mantle of being the oldest surviving, still working roadie. Well, there's a lot of old guys still out there, but have not worked in rock and roll for 30 years. You know? And as I say, we go to funerals and we all see each other. And when I went to Bill Putt's funeral, it was the most amazing day to see all of us older guys hugging each other and musicians and roadies and whatever, you know. Uh, we weren't has-beens. We're not has-beens. Better than being a never-has-been, though, isn't it? Especially when the uh, roadies left... You have to spell a bit deaf, mate, from rock and roll. Do any of the roadies left crossover between uh, doing live work and studio work? Oh, a few... Uh, yeah, a few of them get into production in recording studios and shit. Not, not many of them. That initially, they, that's what they would have wanted to do anyway. Um, so they've gone in that way about getting in through the back door basically by working for bands first up and, and then over that time infiltrating their minds is when you go into the studio well I'm a good front of house engineer you know I, I can mix the band maybe I should try the studio shit you know so I think that that's graduated oh look I think the first one to do it was I can't remember his name uh, he was from Hush the old band Hush dad yeah, yeah. Les, Les was probably the first real, you know, and, and, and uh, the Youngs from ACDC, they were the first guys that really transitioned into being respected as, oh shit, those guys, can actually, they're actually engineers, you know, and I think that, that we've graduated from it. Nowadays, like I say, everyone's a technician, mate. You've got a recording studio at home, you know what I mean? You can go out and spend a thousand bucks and you can record as good as what we were doing for the last 25, 30, 40 years. The quality of the equipment out there is just extraordinary now. I remember when we got our first, you know, non-valve amplifier in the band. It was like, whoa, shit, you know, it weighs nothing. I don't have to carry a tonne and a half in and out four times a night. It only weighs, apart from the speaker box has been heavy. Shit, mate, you know, the Marshall box. But now I see them all going back to the valve amps. It's the only sound you can play. Fender Twin Reverb, mate. Super bass, 100 watt Marshall, best guitar amp ever made. You know what I mean? So, the, the, the few of them transition to there, and I think nowadays every sound engineer a, with a band is a sound engineer in the studio because you've gone in there to rehearse, and some guys put pressure on you. Oh, I can mix your band tonight at so and so pub, only cost you 150 bucks. Oh shit, okay, cool. Because I think it's going to make the band sound better. Huh? The lights go out, the band still plays. People don't go home humming lights. They go home humming music. So, to me, if the band can't play, forget the rest of the bullshit. No sound engineer's going to make you better. You know? But, but yep, yeah, everyone does it now. Everyone's a technician. Uh, the art form's gone, mate. Yeah. 
we, we, we've run out of time now, Struz, but I mean, it's a real pity because we couldn't, on International Voters Day, we honestly mm. could not be having a better time sitting with someone well, like you. Yeah, and we couldn't be with a better person than yeah, you I'll to actually that, celebrate that. So it. it's been great. I, I mean, you are so full of experience and, and stories mm. and memories. Yeah, that, but I can't again, write a book, it, well, yeah, you no, can. No, no, I can't. I think you should write a book because no, you've got your names you, and write books. <laughs> so can't do that way. There are ways. There are ways around. Yeah, I've been asked a heap of times to write a book, yeah. and uh, my response has always been no, no, because uh, not because most of them are still alive or whatever. Uh, but uh, look, I've heard it a million times. What goes on the road stays on the road, and I would never, uh, I would never. I could tell you stories that would make your hair curl, and I'd mention names to you, but I would never write a book about people. No, I could never do that. Never right, do so that's that. about the ethics of, of, of comradeship and workmanship. You know, you know, okay. Loyalty. 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 Yeah, correct. Well, I think a big, big thank you to, no, go to Scrooge. I've got to work on a load five truck for Taylor Swift, so I've got to get out of here. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes, 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 yes